And if you'd like to follow along, our Old Testament reading is from Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32, we'll read verses 22 through 32. Lend your attention, this is God's word. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Yabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Turn in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 6. We'll read verses 5 through 13. Our Lord is instructing us in our religious duties and guarding us and warning us about the unsuspecting or unexpected dangers which lurk even as we exercise uh, that worship which God uh, is pleased um, to receive in the Lord Jesus Christ and to open for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we continue this week reflecting on the great gift of prayer as an exercise of our faith, uh, its blessing, and some of its dangers. This is God's word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, uh, you uh, spoke and all that is came to be. Even now, through the eternal word, you uphold all things. Uh, How wonderful it is that we can uh, come before you and call upon you and receive the assurance of your word that you hear us and you welcome us. How wonderful it is to know that this welcome is rooted, rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved Son, true God and true man, your glory on display to this sad and fallen world. And so as we sit at the feet of our King who here instructs us most directly on this great gift of prayer, I prepare our hearts, Lord, uh, to receive of his instruction. And be pleased to enrich us in our understanding of the blessings and the benefits which he has one for us and in which he now instructs us to walk. Keep us from sinking down, Father, at a sight of our weakness. Keep us from sinking down, Father, at the sight of our sin and our failures as your servants and keep our eyes fixed on the suffering servant, the beloved son, that we might follow after him all of our days. And we pray in his precious name, amen. I suspect that prayer for many of us is similar to our relationship to physical exercise. Uh, We know it's good. We know there's a blessing to be found there. We're not exactly sure how that blessing works exactly. Physical exercise is kind of a mystery, how it's connected to nutrition and sleep. It all seems so mysterious. Indeed, the internal processes of the human life are mysterious, aren't they? Likely we've tasted, even if we're not active all the time, we've tasted something of the type of refreshment that comes through physical activity. It's a unique type of refreshment, isn't it? It's the refreshment of a, of a long day and, and sweat and tired limbs, which has a strange sort of refreshment to it. And yet, it's dreadfully difficult to integrate it into our lives regularly, isn't it? Perhaps things go well for a season, a little bit, but then it's falling back on old habits. Those old habits which are always so near at hand. There are several important ways in which prayer and physical exercise are different, not the least of which is physical exercise is easier not to discourage you, (laughs) and that by far. We're much more at home in the physical, in the earthly. We are relentlessly tethered to this mortal coil. (laughs) We're so very clay-minded. We're much worse when it comes to the spiritual, to the heavenly things. And that's how Christ opens this address. Our 
our Father in heaven, attuning us to an exercise that is strange to us, that is difficult for us. For while we have a spiritual nature, a breath from above, as it were, it's harder for us to tap into that exercise of the soul. Or perhaps you've found it otherwise. Speaking with some members of our congregation, and we were all struck by how frequently we think of tasks as something we are either good at or bad at. End of story. Maybe you've thought of prayer in this way. Well, I'm just not good at prayer. End of story. Just like I'm not good at math. End of story. <laughs> but there's wonderfully encouraging news in the truth that we can learn. And that Christ is interested in teaching us how to pray. As I reflected on my own prayer life, and I suspect it is at least somewhat illuminative of your prayer life, I thought it might be beneficial to spend some time reflecting on prayer. Prayer is a mighty gift. Prayer has always sat near the heart of our expression of thanksgiving, our expression of faith, our enjoyment of communion with God. And it's something that is hard for us. And so instead of expositing line by line the petitions in the Lord's Prayer, uh, which we're actually going to do in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is more than just a plug for evening worship, <laughs> it also highlights that the Lord teaches us through different means, even catechetical preaching, exposits God's Word. Instead of that, I'm going to try to draw our attention to some of the blessings and the instruction that Christ would have us glean from this, one of the key teachings on prayer, one of the major teachings from our Lord on prayer. And so the first observation, when it comes to prayer, we are needy at the most basic level. When it comes to prayer, we're needy at the most basic level. I mean, we're in need in a deeper sense than prayer being an expression of our perceived needs. So we're talking at a deeper level here, because prayer is an expression of our perception of our needs to God. The Lord Jesus Christ assumes that as he's instructing on prayer, right? That's what he says. As he's instructing our prayer, on prayer, he says, your father knows what you need before you ask it. Therefore, assumed, prayer will involve the expression, the asking for what you think you need. I'm saying our need begins even prior to that. Think about it. We don't know how to pray. That's plain in Jesus warning us about praying in the wrong manner. We don't know what to pray. That's plain in that Jesus instructs us in petitions that we are to seek from God's hand. And perhaps most basically, 
we don't know where God is to be found as Father. We've talked about this a number of times. Where is heaven? How do I get there? How do I make sure my prayers end up there? Can you tell me? We might be able to give directions to any number of earthly places, but when it comes to directions to heaven, finding heaven, as it were, it's very plain that heaven is conceived of as a place here, not exclusively in the scripture, but here, right? The third petition makes that plain. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, heaven sounds fantastic. Heaven is a place where God's will is done with a a seamlessness and a comprehensiveness, which is just not exactly the same on earth. Where is this heaven? Where may this Father be found? Left to ourselves, we know nothing of heaven, nor can we call God Father in the sense that Jesus here provides. Have you felt your need when it comes to prayer at that most basic level? Which is really just another way of saying, entertain no delusions of your self-sufficiency. For your need runs deeper than you realize. It isn't just that you have these needs that you're eager to have God here. You don't even know where to find him. You don't even know what to seek from him. You don't even know how to approach him. And so when we see the Lord Jesus Christ instructing us on prayer, indeed as the very one whom the Father has set forth to take us by the hand from our earthly estate and usher, it, usher us, as it were, into the presence of heaven, into the favorable presence of the Father, the heart rejoices. Because we have one who meets every level of our neediness. And that perfectly, and we might say, that irrespective of the accuracy of our perception of it. Oh, rejoice in that. That was a little bit cumbersome. That was a little bit cumbersome in terms of the words there. He provides for our needs the depth thereof apart from the accuracy of our perception of those needs. And that's encouraging, isn't it? Our Lord Jesus Christ would have us attuned to the depth of our need that we might be better positioned to rejoice in the glory of the Father on display in the provision of the Son, addressing the depth of that need, taking us by the hand, establishing us in the presence, and teaching us how to pray. The story is told by R.C. Sproul in his children's book, The Barber Who Wanted to Pray which we have in our library, and I strongly recommend both to parents and children alike. What a good book to read on the Sabbath. In that book, R.C. Sproul captures the same sense of earnest desire to learn how to pray that we hear from the disciples. Do you remember Luke's record of a similar type of exchange? What do they say? Lord, teach us to pray. Pray. 
R.C. Sproul captures something of that same earnest desire in the story of a barber who meets the great theologian Martin Luther. If you had your five minutes with Luther or Calvin or Owen, what would you ask them? Well, you could hardly do better than the barber's question, who, upon meeting Dr. Luther, asked him, not about consubstantiation, (laughs) but about how do I pray? Dr. Luther, how do I pray? I want to learn how to pray. And Luther said, oh, I wish I got that question more often. And one of the best treatments of prayer, one of the best treaties on prayers that we have actually came out of this exchange. It's not just a fictional account, it's an actual account. And we have Luther's little book on prayer that resulted from it. And if Dr. Luther delighted to hear an earnest Christian ask, how do I pray? How much more the Lord Jesus Christ, whom Dr. Luther only faintly resembled as mighty in godliness as that man was. The Lord Jesus Christ delights when we come to him, not with needs, he delights in that too, but even with the more fundamental need of teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. You came to retrieve us from our lost and helpless estate. You came to retrieve us from the sad fate of this earth. You came to establish us in the presence of the Father. Oh, teach me to be refreshed by heaven now through the gift of prayer. What do you think the Lord does? When you ask him that in earnest, I assure you he delights to teach. Take that up in prayer and then go. See how he prayed. You can read all about how he prayed, what he prayed, where he prayed, when he prayed. Indeed, the whole word of God is advantageous to us in that regard. Thus, we can seek the Lord's instruction on this and then search the Lord's riches on this and know for certain that he will teach you and draw you deeper and deeper into that life-giving presence of heaven even now. But we can also mark that he does afford to us that staggering gift of expressing actual needs before him, some high and grand, some mundane and at hand. And so second, we can observe, we pray out of a sense of specific need and out of a sincere desire for God to meet that need. Again, note that the heartbeat of prayer is a sense of need. Isn't that right? But Mark, how half-hearted we are in our prayers in this regard. Is that potentially tethered to the fact that we don't really think we're all that needy? By and large, we think we're fine, as we're going to see in just a moment. Here the Lord instructs us both concerning what we need most and in an assurance that the Father delights to give these things to us as we seek them from his hand. He assures us that he knows what we need, and he assures us of God's fatherly favor and withholding no good thing from his children. And far from laxity in our prayers, the Lord takes that astonishing fact and encourages regularity and constancy and perseverance 
perseverance in our prayers. So we can notice first that the order of our needs are kind of surprising. Are they not? Again, we think of prayer as a primary way to express our perception of our needs for the day. And what comes to mind is our need for bread, strength. But the Lord would orient us to a grander arena altogether in the first three petitions. Sanctify your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. What we need most, Christian, is for God to be seen for who he is the world over. What we need most is for his people to grow in their understanding of who he is as he has revealed himself in grace in the Lord Jesus Christ and as he will reveal himself in glory when Christ returns. That feels kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? Perhaps we pray too small, as one pastor put it. For this is an impressive scope that the Father welcomes us to take up in our prayers, nothing shy of the ushering in of the eschaton in your little room with your paltry prayers. <laughs> That's what you're praying here. What do you think it means, thy kingdom come? What do you think that means? You're praying, end all things in glory. <laughs> That's what you're praying. That is a magnificent prayer. That is vast in scope. That is impressive in grandeur. To glimpse even a flicker of what that entails is enough to spend 10,000 lifetimes in meditation. He would orient us to the grandiosity of his purposes so that we might marvel that we are the beneficiaries of them. He doesn't set the first three petitions over and against the last three. Rather, he orients us aright to the blessing that is ours in the world seeing who God is in the Son by the Spirit. That's magnificent, beloved. Do you feel that to be your most fundamental need? Day by day, you think, change this circumstance, change that circumstance, do this for me here, do that for me here. How long until you get, oh yeah, by the way, let your kingdom come? It's probably not as near at hand as we might like it to be when we're seeing clearly or when we're accosted by the glories of redemption on display in the revelation of the glory of God's name. We love our paltry kingdoms, don't we? We love our frail and fragile understandings of what we think ought to be. Don't we? Don't we? Don't you? We overvalue our own understanding by 10,000 miles. Don't you? Don't you? He says our need ultimately is to find our place in God's story, not to force him to take a supporting role in ours. That was cumbersome as well. 
but it's true. (laughs) We can also mark the consistency and the regularity with which he would have us pray. Our expression of need is to be regular and constant. How often do you pray? A decent answer is, or ought to be, regularly. And the clearer the understanding we have of our need in the light of God's word, the more regular our prayers will be. How often do you need bread? How often do you need forgiveness? How often do you need protection? Not against earthly enemies, but against spiritual enemies. Those are constant needs, beloved. They will characterize our existence during our earthly sojourn. And God has so designed, not just to give us those things, but to conscript us in petitioning him for those things so that we might be all the more ready to recognize the regularity with which he gives those things. That also was cumbersome. Get it together, Seifert. It's worth pointing out that prayer isn't for him, it's for us. This isn't in the manuscript, so I'm going to go long. (laughs) He combats that notion that we all have that prayer is somehow informing God. He says, no, he knows what you need before you ask it. Think about it. Just humbly for a second, reflect upon how well you can diagnose what you really need. Just for a second. And then rejoice that he knows what you need in the truest sense, and he's willing to give it, which combats the second error that we have, that somehow we have to coerce God into doing us good. Both those things are combated, swept away in a single sentence. Your father, he delights to do you good, knows what you need better than you (laughs) before you ask it. At a pre-verbal level, that's remarkable. And yet, he gives us prayer. Why? Not to inform him, not to coerce him, but to position us to receive with fuller comprehension those gifts that he gives so freely. Right? Isn't that kind of what Paul talks about in Philippians 4? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything... By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and you'll get everything you ask for. No, and the peace of Christ, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What comes upon us is the assurance of the very thing Christ teaches right here. Namely, he knows our needs, and he's favorably disposed towards us. Peace. Peace. It's not for him, it's for us, beloved. He's already done you unfathomable good in pardoning you and establishing you in the access of grace in which we stand, removing the guilt, establishing you in righteousness, and now ushering you further and further into an understanding and a participation of the riches of his grace and his mercy, which will remain unexplored unto Eternity. Inexhaustible. He commends to us a regularity and a constancy of prayer out of a perception of our need and out of a perception of his fatherly 
benevolence in freely giving. But we get into error here, don't we? We think, I have bread. I got bread. I've always had bread. I'll never not have bread. And we grow lax. We'll see in the evening uh, worship that this is no mere petition for bread. It's also for a heart to receive from God as a gift our bread. Because life is more than the body, beloved. It's about growing in that confidence that marks the good, the difficult, the ill as coming to us from God's fatherly providence whereby he assures us that he's working all things for our good. The same thing with forgiveness, right? Do you need forgiveness? Are you in need of forgiveness? We think, no, we're justified. We don't need forgiveness. No, don't think that way. That's true. We are justified, perfect, established, covered in Christ's righteousness. But teachings like this, teachings like 1 John, make plain what the Westminster Confession of Faith 11.5 states plainly, that God continues to forgive the sins of those who are justified. We continue to earnestly grapple with sin that we might earnestly come to understand more and more the magnitude of his grace and the blessings of confessing particular sins, petitioning for particular grace, is that he specifically forgives you. That's better than general forgiveness, isn't it? To know that what I've done particularly in my cruelty to my husband, in my cruelty to my wife, in my cruelty to the children, in my utter neglect of my neighbors, in my shortness of temper, in my lust, in my fear, in my discontentment, that I can bring those specific transgressions to him in confessions mean I can expect not a vague and nebulous forgiveness, but a particular word that says, for that, pardon Forgiven. It's done. It's over. I love you. I've provided him. Go and sin no more. And then again, and again, and again. And what begins to dawn on us through our earthly life is what we will see for the era of eternity that there's no bottom to this grace, there's no bottom to this mercy. Or as Richard Sibbs. Loved to say there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. Take that quote. Pin it on your wall. Tattoo it on your arm. I'm not commending tattoo. If you've got a thing with that, I'm speaking figuratively. Get your phylacteries. (laughs) Beloved, prayer is a gift for us. And we're in danger of mistaking the regularity with which God gives good for a laxity in petitioning him for that good. That would be as foolish as a fish mistaking the constancy of water for its non-existence. He enjoins upon us a regular and a constant course of prayer. How often do you need protection? I'm not just talking about physical protection. Do you not feel how near sin is at hand? My children can't even interrupt me without me having to go to battle with my cruelty, my impatience. And I begot them. (laughs) 
Do you feel how near sin is at hand? That's the type of protection he is talking about here. Do you feel how weak your faith is? How constantly it's challenged in times of trial? How quick you are to raise up and shake your tiny fist in the face of God? Rise up against others when anything starts to go against you? That's the sort of protection we're talking about. It's a constant need. We've made this point again. Don't mistake the relative quiet and comfort of our lives for the absence of true threat. Don't mistake the relative quiet and comfort of our lives for the absence of true threat. For the serpent was in the garden, beloved. A veritable paradise. (laughs) And there he tempted How much more us live in an age of sin and misery and we're vulnerable to the temptations of the flesh. This leads to the next observation on prayer, namely, even in individual prayer, we're not alone. Nor would the Father have us fixate on ourselves to the exclusion of others. We're prone in Christianity to think that our relationship to Christ is first and foremost personal and private. And only secondarily or much, 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 much later down the line as corporate and communal. Is everybody with me? Everybody's with me. Now there's something very important to the personal and the individual. Our Lord calls individuals. Matthew, follow me. Peter, follow me. Janet, follow me. He calls individuals. He calls persons. The gospel accosts individuals with their specific sin and the staggering reality of particular forgiveness for that sin, a particular extension of the gift of life to an individual. It is personal in that. Each and every one of you right now accosted with the declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. You cannot rest in someone else's acknowledgement of that. You must grapple with that claim. You must grapple with what the Lord teaches regarding matters of sin and death. You must grapple with what the Lord teaches concerning himself. You must grapple with the empty tomb. The account of the third day. The ascent and everything related to it. You must grapple with that. And as you bow the knee to Christ, you find the riches of his particular love open up even more. You find he set his love on me particularly in eternity past. The Lord Jesus Christ knew me particularly as he went to the cross. The Holy Spirit pressed the gospel particularly upon my heart as it went forth and brought forth life. That is a staggeringly personal set of exchanges, is it not? And then you begin to survey your life and realize all of these things which I was prone to think of as coincidence or happenstance or didn't give a second consideration. All of the good which came unto me, all of these little glimpses I get that the ill which I perceived formerly were actually jockeying me for good. Oh, that's his particular care for me. It is personal. It is particular, but not exclusively, beloved. Because the understanding that Christ would have us all have is that we're a family, even more knit together. We're a body. 
such that a foot makes no sense, indeed is a monstrosity apart from the body. You hear the communal and the corporate elements in the prayer here? Our Father, our bread, our debts, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Again, Mark, even the counter-instinctual nature of that, where we go to the Lord and we bring my, me, my, my, me, me, me. The Christian starts to orient to us, our, we, out of a perception that God's glory is on display in a host without number upon whom he has placed his name. There's a loveliness to this as well, because I don't know if you're attuned to broader cultural narratives, but we're living in an age of fragmentation where no one can really speak meaningfully into anyone else's experience, where everyone's experience is so personalized that there are a billion different bubbles of isolation that no one has a right or an understanding to speak into to call them out of that bubble. Here the Lord says, hey, how do you know what I need? Hey, it's the same thing that you need. <laughs> That's remarkably practical as we take up the call to pray for one another. How do I know what you need if I haven't spent hours with you in the pastoral counseling room? Jesus tells me what you need because it's the same thing that I need. You need God's name to be magnified. You need an assurance of his love and forgiveness. You need a portion of his grace so that you might be enabled to forgive. You need the provision that can come only from him in the eyes to see that it's not happenstance, but particularly from his hand. You need the protection that can only be extended by the one who has been exalted over all earthly power such that he can defend us from a spiritual register. You need those things. I need those things. You need them just as badly as I need them. And my well-being is bound up with your well-being. You see how that reorients us? You see how that ushers us into a scope of glory in seeing the magnitude of salvation played out in a million different lives, in a million different variations of provision and protection and perseverance? He's way bigger than you think, and he's way better than you think. I can say that with 100% confidence. 100% confidence. This brings us to the last and final observation. I didn't go as late as I thought. Our Lord instructs us to pray with reverent intimacy. It emerges naturally from the familial model picture that he presses upon us he's our father which means what we're family and we're interested in one another's good and so we pray for one another according to the needs that he tells us we all have but that also assumes a relationship to the almighty which is astonishingly set forth here as father now, when we think of father, what comes to mind, perhaps first and foremost, is intimacy, right? 
And there's a sense in which that's right. Psalm 103 encapsulates this as a father has compassion upon his children, so the Lord has compassion upon those who fear him. There's an intimacy of relation between father and child. But it wouldn't have ended at intimacy, and I think it ends at intimacy for us. I think for the minds of his hearers and going back even beyond that, father would have evoked both intimacy and reverence. And I think we're losing that. Because it trades on the earthly. It trades on our understanding of the earthly. It's a metaphor. It's a condescension. He takes what we know, Father, assumes what we understand by that term, and then projects it with perfection into a true understanding of who he is. That's how a metaphor works. That's how an analogy works. But that also means we're vulnerable Because if we've got bad conceptions of the Father on this end, we're going to carry that baggage onto the other end, isn't it? And I don't think reverence is the first thing that jumps to anyone's mind anymore when you hear Father. Am I wrong? I'm not wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. Well, if I am, the Lord will exact it from me. It seems we're losing something of this, but if you read Kristen Lovren's doctor, we're about to rehearse. You've had your reading list for quite some time now. If you read Kristen Lavrin's data, it's impossible not to esteem Lavrin's, Kristen's father, for his wisdom and his goodness and his constancy and his nobility and his patience. If you read War and Peace, I suspect you will be moved by the tenderness and the dignity and the understanding of Count Rostov, especially as he deals with his young and sometimes foolish son, Nikolai. When you watch Sir Hector in The Once and Future King lovingly confront his son Kay when Kay is caught in a lie, you see an excellent father and you stand in awe. When you watch Mr. Peggotty in David Copperfield go on his errand of love to retrieve little Emily from her fallen estate, you see that a good father is a wonder to behold. Beloved, if we lose our ability to see it on this end, what have we forfeited on the other end? When God is pleased to make himself known as our Father through the beloved Son. The Lord teaches us to address the God of the universe, the one who spoke all things, who upholds all things, before whom we stand in awe as our Father. Indeed, this is the very cry the Spirit yields from our hearts. And make no mistake, it is the very cry of Christ himself who has purchased us this staggering privilege of belonging to this infinite and eternal God as beloved children. His is the kingdom. His is the power. His is the glory. And he is favorably bestowed towards you, beloved. Take that awe and that confidence to him in prayer as you look to Christ to instruct you further and enrich you in the riches of heaven, which he has won for you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we do give you thanks for this staggering privilege of prayer and acknowledge, Lord, our slowness to exercise it and our 
wrongheadedness when it comes to it. Lord, we're so grateful for your patience and how you instruct us so perfectly. We do pray, Lord, that you would enrich us in our understanding of this great gift, that we might be readier and readier to exercise it, Lord, being made quicker and quicker to see your glory on display in the Lord Jesus Christ and in your providential dealings. We pray, Father, that as we take these gifts with us on our earthly sojourn, Lord, uh, that we would be impressed with you. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.